Let me invite you to open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, that's where we're going to be studying uh, this morning, uh, returning to uh, the book of Acts and returning to Acts chapter 9. Last week we looked at the first 19 verses, uh, up through the first half of verse 19, and we're going to continue this week from the second half of verse 19 through verse 31. If you don't have a Bible with you, you want to look at it in a printed version. There are blue Bibles in the chair racks in front of you, and this uh, begins on Acts, uh, or on Acts 9, 19. Uh, you can find on page 1167. All right, so here we have today the second part of the conversion story of this guy named Saul from Tarsus, a man who would eventually become, or more famously be known as, the Apostle Paul. And last week we looked at the dramatic story of, of Saul's conversion, but, but now we get to what now? Then what? What happened to Saul after that? Well, that's, that's where we are now. So let me invite you to stand if you're able as I read this, and then when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts 9, starting with the second half of verse 19 and going through verse 31. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So we went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so, um, so just fair warning um, that you might be hearing a number of references to Les Miserables over the next couple of weeks as we prepare for the Calvary conversation, right? Because I've... Um, I can't help myself. I'm re-listening. I don't know how many times or to, to the uh, to, to the, the full musical. I'm also I'm also reading rereading the book. Rereading is probably a, a, a stretch because it was high school and I, what did I remember from that? But um, but anyway, so just fair warning that you're going to hear um, probably a couple of references to the story because I love the story and the story and part of the story of what I love so much is this theme that is at the heart of it. This fascinating and profound discussion about the nature of conversion and whether redemption, particularly, particularly redemption of the most hardened of sinners, whether redemption is even possible. I love that theme and it goes throughout the book. See, in, this, in, in Les Miserables, in the story, the main character is a guy named Jean Valjean and, and he's, he's the hardened sinner guy. 
He's a bitter ex-convict who was, was jailed for petty theft originally, but then for his obstinance and continuing to try to escape over and over again, he ends up spending 19 years in prison, and he's so embittered by the time he comes out that he isn't afraid to, to continue stealing, even stealing from a priest who had shown him hospitality. And then he has sort of this dramatic conversion experience that sort of changes his life. But his nemesis in the story, in this long story, is a police inspector named Javert. And Javert is the guy who doesn't believe that change is possible, that, like ever. Now, he believes in God of some sort. He believes in right and wrong. But he does not believe that redemption, conversion, or even the possibility of change exists. See, Javert's theology of sin is focused solely on the need for judgment. In the, in the, you know, the famous musical version of Les Miserables, he says it like this. He says, for, it is, for, for so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Right? That's what's written on the, on the doorway to paradise, that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. He'll later say directly to Jean Valjean's face, right, once a thief, forever a thief. All right, but here's the question. Here's the issue. It's very easy to sort of just like casually dismiss Javert because he's mean, his heart is cold, he's inflexible. But on the other hand, we have to recognize, we have to admit that the world is filled with stories of people who have, who have hidden behind so-called conversion experiences. And you know, Javert, he's a guy in law enforcement and particularly as you talk to folks in law enforcement, it's very easy to, to, to adopt a posture like Javert's because you've seen it many times. People who hide behind these conversion experiences, I'm different and yet at the core they're really not. And that's the question that's in front of us this morning. We have this guy named Saul and clearly something dramatic has happened to him. That's verses 1 to 19. That's what we looked at last week. He had this dazzling Jesus experience that blinded him and then he he gets his sight back and he's baptized and that's great, but how do we know, how do we know it's real? How do we know that we, can, that we can trust him? That's the question the disciples were asking. People had real questions. They had valid questions. And so should we. And that's why we need not just the first, first 19 verses of chapter 9, but the rest of the story as well. Now, if you have your Bibles open still to Acts chapter 9, scan up to verse 5 because that's what we looked at last week. Jesus appears to Saul, knocks him down on the road when he's traveling to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then in verse 5, Saul says, he asks the question, who are you, Lord? And if you were here last week, we said last week that this is exactly the right, the foundational question to ask when you're first confronted with Jesus. The first thing to get straight is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And Jesus answers Saul, answers his question in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, in Acts chapter 9, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, Luke is very efficiently, he's very, uh, he's very quickly kind of relating the story, and he reports that Jesus continues talking, and it seems in this account here in Acts chapter 9 that there's no interruption between Jesus' first statement, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and what he then continues to say. But when Saul retells his conversion story later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, Luke tells us then, he expands on it a little bit, Luke there relates how Paul tells the story, and he says that right after Jesus identifies himself, right after Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Paul asks another question. It's in Acts 22. Paul says, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And I answered, who are you, Lord? Okay, first question, identity question. And Jesus answers, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. There it is, the historical Jesus, the one who was executed, and now, obviously, the one who is still alive and is challenging Saul in his, in his sin. But Saul then asks, Acts 22, verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? Right? First he asks, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. What shall I do, Lord? And Jesus then answers with the same words that we did read in Acts chapter 9. Rise, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told what is appointed for you to do. But it's the insertion of that question, what shall I do, Lord, that's of most interest, I think, to us this morning. Because it's, it's what Saul does that becomes the basis for everyone being able to look at him and say, yep, this guy, this guy is different. This conversion is real. Jesus said that, that, you, that you'd be able to recognize the tree by the fruit that it bears. Right? But what does that look like? Well, what are the evidences of conversion that it's real in the life of this guy named Saul? I listed three that I observed. Let's just kind of go through them in your, book, in your, uh, in your bulletin. I noted them. Let's just go through them quickly. Right? Three things. The first is proclamation. Right? What kind of evidence do we see that his conversion is real? Well, if you really understand what Jesus did, then you're going to tell people about him. You're going to publicly identify with his name. And in, in, the most, in its most basic sense, that's what Saul did when he, when he was baptized. That's a proclamation of sort. That's a real proclamation. And we stand up and you, and you visibly join the church. That's what Saul did. That is a proclamation. He did. That's an evidence of, of sorts that, that his conversion is real. But but think about that a little bit more, right? When, when, you, when you kind of say, when you, when you join the church, the, the second question, the insert was in your bulletin, the membership questions, the second question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of sinners? Right? Well, Saul answered that question. He would have answered that question. I do. Right? Absolutely. And part of the evidence that he actually believed it was that he was willing to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners to, to others. He believed believed that Jesus was the Son of God, and he said so. That's what it's verse 20. He was in Damascus. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, this is actually, that phrase in reference to Jesus is uh, Son of God is actually only used, maybe this only one time, maybe once or twice. But it's a very common title for, for Jesus. It's clearly identifying Jesus as, as God. Saul would use it many times in his in his, in his letter, Jesus regularly referred to himself as God's son, and this is what Paul was teaching. He was proclaiming that Jesus was the eternal son of God. He was also proclaiming that Jesus was the savior of sinners. It continues in verse 22 to say that he proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, right? The Christ, the Messiah, the promised rescuer of God's people from their greatest enemy. That's who Jesus was. He was the Son of God and he was the Savior of sinners. And I think it's important for us to see that in Saul's proclamation, it's important that both be there. Right? He's got to be both the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. Right? If he's only the Son of God and he's not the Savior of sinners, then he's all-powerful perhaps, but we're doomed because he's not willing to use his power on our behalf. If he's only if he's only a, you know, a, a, a well-intentioned savior of sinners, but he's not actually God, well, then he's well-intentioned, but he's not powerful enough to actually save us from our sins. He needs to be both. And that's the Jesus that Saul proclaimed, the true Jesus, the all-powerful Jesus, the rescuer Jesus. But the evidence that he actually believed it was that he was proclaiming it. Now, it's an uncomfortable application, I know, to kind of take this and apply this to our 
ourselves. But I wonder, can this observation be made of us? Can we say this of ourselves? Would, others, would other people know that you are a converted man, a converted woman, by your willingness to share the identity and the rescue mission of Jesus with them? All right, there's this common phrase, maybe you've heard it, you probably have, it goes like this, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you ever heard that phrase, ever heard someone say that? Preach the gospel, use words of if necessary. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which is not true. There's no record of St. Francis of Assisi ever saying that or writing that. Never, not, none of his close associates ever said that he did, and it doesn't match his life and ministry anyway because St. Francis regularly used words in the proclamation of the gospel. And besides that, the phrase actually, really quite honestly, is nonsense. It's like saying, feed the hungry, use food if necessary. The gospel is verbally communicated. Now, that's not to say that our actions shouldn't match our words, which is what often people mean by that, that our actions should be consistent with the gospel we proclaim, that many times people need to see our love in action before they hear what we say to them, but we must say to them. Saul certainly thought that words were necessary. That's what he wrote later in Romans chapter 10 when he said, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Someone's got to open their mouth. Someone had to open their mouth to Jill's sister at the University of Delaware for her to hear. Choi Young Hoon was a Korean Christian working with the underground church in, in China. And because of that, he became a target of the, of the Chinese police, right? But rather than let that stop him, he knew he was a target. He said, look, he said, I knew one day they would imprison me. <laughs> I had already made up my mind to evangelize them, to evangelize the authorities, the guards, the judges, the soldiers, the other prisoners. If I was arrested, that's what I was going to do. Well, in January of 2003, that's what happened. Choi was traveling on a train to meet a friend when he was arrested, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. He was terribly mistreated. Right? But he eventually gained opportunities to share the gospel with his fellow prisoners and with the guards. Now, the guards continued to interrogate him. They tried to break him. They tried to tell him to be quiet. But this is, what Choi, this is how Choi responded. He said, if I didn't share the gospel, I wouldn't be a Christian. You see that? Now, what, what he's not saying, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying that by, by sharing the gospel, he's earning his salvation. He's not saying that, that this somehow accumulates a merit for him that God then accepts and that becomes his salvation. But he's saying, I would, I would have no evidence of my conversion if it did not flow out of my mouth. To Choi, to Saul, proclamation is definitional. It's just what a Christian does. Now, being a, being a proclaimer does not mean that we all stand up and teach in public gatherings like Saul does. But it does mean that one of the things we do when we've been rescued is we testify with words to the grace that's been shown to us by the rescuer. Now, something else that is of evidence in Saul's conversion is his experience of opposition. Right? He experiences opposition. And how he experiences that is a testimony that is a conversion is real. We see it here. Paul faces opposition in Damascus. He faces opposition in Jerusalem. Now, I've talked before about how being a jerk for Jesus doesn't count. Right? If you're a jerk and people are rude and they hate you because of it, it's not the same thing as being persecuted. Right? You, can't be, you can't walk around and say, I must be a Christian because people hate me. Well, maybe, maybe not. Right? Maybe they just hate you because you're, because you're acting like an idiot. But the Bible does teach us that there is, there is almost always an offense to the message of the gospel when the message of the gospel is understood. 
right? Because, because when the gospel goes out, it is a challenge to, to the person's self-authority, right? We, we want to we, we rule ourselves. And so when we, when we proclaim the gospel and we say, no, there is a ruler, there is someone else to whom you're accountable and you've failed him, right? There is inherent in that an offense. And if you want to be the one who's ruining, running your own life, well, then you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And what's particularly offensive is, is someone like Saul. I mean, if you're in opposition to the gospel, to the message of Jesus, to the person of Jesus, if you're in opposition to it, then someone like Saul particularly infuriates you. Because Saul is not some, you know, weak-minded nobody convert whom the Jewish leaders might be tempted with some of the other, you know, some of the other people who might have converted. They might have just been content to write them off. Well, it's the rabble. I mean, it's the fishermen, it's the laborers, it's the, it's the sinners. They're, but here you got, no, here you got Saul. He had been one of the Jewish leaders himself. And now he's on the opposite side. He's one, of the people that, he's one of the people that isn't supposed to exist. Someone who had been on the inside of a lifestyle that's opposite to, what they, to, 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 to God and to the gospel. And he's converted. And he begins, post his conversion, to expose the false hope of a lifestyle opposed to God. And so he becomes a particular threat. And, 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 and the world is filled with these kinds of people, and they oftentimes become the, particular, the, the target of a, of a particular kind of derision because they had been on one side and they had so publicly converted to the other. Right? There's lots of stories like this. But whenever someone who had dedicated themselves to opposing, to opposing Jesus now becomes a follower of Jesus, they become a target. And that's what happens to Saul. He becomes a target. He had, been, he had been a big leader in the Jewish religious establishment, but now this big leader is now hated by them because he's exposing their misunderstanding of the God that they claim to serve. It happens in Damascus. Look at verse 23. The Jews plotted to, to kill him, it says. That's talking about the Jewish leaders when it says Jews. That's, through the rest of the book of Acts, that's what it's going to mean. Not every Jew, because lots of Jews had converted, Saul himself being one of them. But the Jewish leaders, they, they plotted to kill him. And it got so bad that Saul had to make an escape through a basket lowered through the city wall. It's almost a comical kind of a scene to envision it. He gets to Jerusalem. Jerusalem ultimately isn't any better. Look at verse 29. He's disputing with the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews. So obviously, the preaching of the gospel didn't go, <laughs> didn't go over any better in Greek than it did in Hebrew, so, so he's, he's, he's attacked there too. They try to kill him too. Now, what are we to say to all this? Not all Christians are faced with this kind of opposition, and it's silly to go around looking for opposition like this just to sort of prove to yourself that you're a real follower of Jesus, but the evidence of true conversion is a willingness to accept it should it come, if it comes. It doesn't mean that you enjoy it, but it, isn't, but it, but it means that it's not unexpected. Right? That was probably that was the experience of the apostles, and Saul had probably witnessed it firsthand when he was on the side of the persecutors. Back in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are called before the Jewish leaders. You might remember this story. And they're told, you need to stop telling people about Jesus. You just got to stop this. And they answered, verse 9, chapter 5, they say, I'm, essentially, I'm sorry, we can't do this. God told us to. We got we to obey God rather than, than you. And so they were beaten up. And then in verse 41, it says that all the apostles, that the apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? They weren't rejoicing because they're like, wow, that really felt good. No, they were rejoicing because they knew that what they were proclaiming was true. 
and that they had been given the privilege of being able to participate in the proclamation of that, even if it meant they experienced the consequences of the opposition. Now, did they stay quiet after, after that? No. Verse 42, back in chapter 5, what did the apostles do? Every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just kept on saying it. Persevering through opposition. That's the second evidence that we see that Saul's conversion is real. Now, last thing. I put there partnership. And this is what I mean by that. Saul's relationship with Jesus was a personal relationship, but it was not a solitary relationship. In, in, it says that he was with the disciples in Damascus, and presumably when he was there, he received from them some, some continued instruction, from, some encouragement from them. When he gets to Jerusalem, he makes it a priority to connect with the church that's there. Tells us in verse 26, he attempts to join the disciples. Now, like in Damascus, they're a little bit skeptical of, of this at first, right? Saul doesn't seem, though, to be impatient with them. Seems to kind of bear with that. Barnabas comes alongside, helps out, testifies, you know, I know this guy. You had to see what he did in Damascus. Let me tell you about it, right? Saul perseveres. He, get, he gets it. He understands. He knows what they probably must think about him. He's willing to take the time for them to, to get to know him. And we learn from one of Saul's letters that he, he met with Peter for about two weeks, spent time with James, the brother of Jesus, during this time. He wasn't alone. Now, Saul does make it clear in his letters that he considered himself to be an apostle in his own right, a legitimate apostle in his own right. He wasn't a second tier. He didn't just get it from others. He got it directly from Jesus. But I think it's important to see that he was intent on following Jesus at Jesus' call, but he was intent on following Jesus in partnership with others. And that, and that took time to, to build those relationships, to establish the kind of credibility for what would later become his leadership and all his famous missionary journeys and his church planting success. It all started with a humility to sit among the others to learn with them and to work with them. In fact, one of the things that's a little bit hard to appreciate in Acts chapter 9 with a narrative that kind of moves this fast, and I told you, Luke's trying to be efficient as he kind of tells the story here, but one of the, the things that's hard to kind of pick up is the amount of time that actually passes in these couple of short paragraphs that we read. Right? It's true that, start, that Saul started proclaiming Jesus right away, but the primary and prominent leadership position that he ultimately assumed in the church, that was years and years later after his conversion. We don't see it here in Acts 9, but somewhere during this time in Damascus, Paul tells us this in one of his letters, Saul tells us this in, in one of his letters in Galatians chapter 1, sometimes during this time in Damascus that it mentions here in Acts chapter 9, he leaves and he spends somewhere up to three years in Arabia. Now, this is not the Arabian Peninsula we think of it today. It's a kingdom northeast of, uh, of, the, of the Dead Sea that was referred to as Arabia. But he spends about three years in this place with the Lord, with himself, studying, learning, presumably. And then he comes back to Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem after the great basket escape. And then he spends time in Jerusalem. And then it says, after Jerusalem, after he's chased out of Jerusalem, verse 30, that he went to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is a very important city. It's a very prominent in the region. It was very strategic. But Saul spends probably the next eight to ten years in Tarsus, and he's not mentioned again in Acts until chapter 11, when Barnabas is sent to retrieve Saul and bring him to Antioch. So what you have is probably, in total, about more than a decade 
of faithful ministry in the local church, of fellowship, of learning before God starts sending him out on the prominent church planting missions that we know him for. Why? Why is this so significant? Well, because you need to be a faithful part of the church before you can start one. Because starting one, particularly if you're a really talented, smart guy like Saul, starting one, a successful one, can be a real ego trip if you aren't grounded in the accountability of others, if you haven't learned that you're a part of something that's larger than yourself. That's what's going on here. These are the evidences that we see. It's a quick summary. Let me just, and then I want to address a potential misunderstanding of our application and what we can take away from this. But quick summary. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 31, what we read, today's text, we see Paul, the name that he would later go by, Saul, living out three main demonstrations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Three evidences that would lead the other apostles, the other disciples, over time to conclude that his conversion was legitimate. What were they? One, his bold and clear proclamation of the truth about Jesus. That was the first one. Second one, his willingness to accept and to endure opposition to that proclamation of Jesus. And third, his partnership of working with other Christians in the local church, the posture of humility that that was evidenced by that. But here's where, I want to, here's where I want to cut off as we close, a potential misunderstanding. Because it would be easy to take these things, these evidences, look at ourselves, and for me to begin beating you over the head with where you fail to do them. Of course, I'd have to start with beating myself over the head with them for where I fail to do them. But that approach, just simply kind of looking at this and saying, oh man, I, I don't proclaim like I should. I don't, I, don't, I don't accept, I don't, I don't endure particularly well opposition, and then sometimes I don't really like working with others, particularly when I look around at who the others are. And it'd be easy to kind of just beat us, to take this and beat ourselves up o- over the head with it, but that approach is unproductive, and it's actually contrary to the message that Saul was proclaiming. Right? It's Jesus who saves you and not yourself, not your works. Why? So that you can't boast. So what do you do when you fail in these things that Jesus has commanded us to do that are the evidences of the Christian life where where we we don't see the fruit that we wanted to see of following Jesus? What do you do? You return to the message of grace that's found in the gospel, the message that Saul has been proclaiming all along. You remember that the suffering of Jesus was sufficient for your failure. Right? You don't need to beat yourself on the head with these failures because the beating has already been taken. It's been taken already. Right? See, here is where Inspector Javert was absolutely right about the, about the doorway to paradise. On the doorway to paradise, it's written that those who suffer and those who fall must pay the price. Right? Here's where he was right. The, the right part was that a price must be paid. That in order to enter through the doorway to paradise, a price must be paid. But Saul would have known, because few people understood the Torah better than Saul, Saul would have known that thousands of years before, the Lord commanded the angel of death to descend upon Egypt and bring judgment, just like Javert would have wanted, upon the unrighteous. But Saul would have known that the Israelites would have been subject to that same judgment if it had not been for what? For the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was smeared where? On the doorway. The sign of the price paid to enter into the eternal protection of the Lord is the blood of the Lamb, smeared on the doorway. 
the doorway that leads us to paradise. And that's why it would have meant so much more for Saul to have encountered Jesus. Because when he saw Jesus, when he understood Jesus, he now understood the fulfillment of what he had been taught and what he knew from thousands of years before, that before him now was the eternal, ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he was. This was the blood smeared that would allow him to be able to enter through the doorway into paradise. The, the, the Les Miserables movie that we're watching and the, and the, and the musical, as a matter of fact, um, skip a very, a very interesting scene that is recounted in the, in, in the novel. If you watch the movie clip that I sent around, those of you who are on our, our Calvary Connections email newsletter on Friday morning, I sent around a clip, and, and, I, and, and, I, and, and it's the scene where, this, where the kind priest who had shown the ex-convict Jean Valjean, shown him uh, um, uh, grace and, and brought him into his home and fed him, and, um, and, and, and Valjean steals from him, and, and, and he's caught, and he's brought back before the, the priest, and, 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 and the priest confronts Valjean in this scene. But instead of insisting on justice, sending him back to jail, and instead of just showing him mercy and say, all right, it's all right, give me back the silver, we'll just call it even, no, no charges pressed. Instead of doing either of those things, the priest takes it a full step further not only lets him keep the silver he had already taken, but gives him the rest of the priest's silver as well. Says, no, take this. And in that act of grace, the bishop says that he purchases Valjean's soul and gives it back to God. It's an incredibly powerful scene. And many of you wrote back, actually, to the email and said, yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes too. But in the movie and in the musical, it goes from that scene, almost in a straight line, to Valjean, this kind of completely changed Jean Valjean. Just from there to like, he's changed. But in the novel, there's this key scene in between that's incredibly encouraging if you understand it. Right? Shortly after Valjean leaves the bishop, he leaves the priest with all this silver. He's on the road in the countryside and he comes across a young boy, 10, 12 years old. And this young boy is playing with some money, flipping it in the air or whatever. And he, and he flips and he drops a 40 sou piece yeah, 40 cents or whatever, but, but an incredible, a decent amount of money for a young boy at that time. And it rolls on the ground and it lands right in front of Valjean and Valjean puts his boot on it. And the boy comes over and says, hey, that's mine. And Valjean basically scares him away. Get out of here. And the boy runs away. Valjean's huge or whatever, right? And then almost immediately, right, this pretty despicable act begins to settle on Valjean. He had just been given silver candlesticks worth about 2,000 francs, for which he should have been gone to jail, but is not going to jail for. And then he steals 40 cents, 40 sous, from this little boy who, 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 who didn't have nearly as much money. And the only reason why he stole it, really, not because he needed the money, was just simply because he was bigger, stronger, and he could. Right? This was the guy who apparently had just had this amazing conversion experience, right? Now watch what happens. Valjean is almost immediately racked with guilt, and he tries to find the little boy, tries to search him out, but he can't. And then finally, this is what it says in the novel, his knees suddenly bent under him as if an invisible power overwhelmed him at a blow with the weight of his bad conscience. He fell exhausted upon a great stone, his hands clenched in his hair and his face on his knees and exclaimed, what a wretch I am. Now indeed he is. Javert would have agreed. I told you so, he would have said. Once a thief, forever a thief. See, 
see, it meant nothing. You'll never amount to anything. And here's where the misunderstanding can happen. Have you ever been to this place before? Have you ever been in this spot before? Thought you've changed. You've experienced some great, powerful, emotional maybe conversion in your life. And you thought it was real, and then you fail again. And typically we conclude one of two things when that happens. We conclude, like Javert, once a thief, forever a thief. Men like you can never change. And we agree with that. We walk away from Jesus. I knew it. It wasn't real. Or, on the other extreme, we say, okay, I messed up. I just need to try a little bit harder. I'll work harder. Next time will be different. We beat ourselves up with it and we move along. Next time will be different. Until next time isn't different. And then when it happens, when you fail again, you sink even more deeply into despair. But in Victor Hugo's novel, neither of those things happen. This is what it says. It says, Jean Valjean's heart swelled and he burst into tears. It was the first time he had wept for 19 years. While he wept, the light grew brighter and brighter in his mind, an extraordinary light, a light at once transporting and terrible. His past life, his first offense, his long expiation, his brutal exterior, his hardened interior, all this returned and appeared to him clearly, but in a light that he had never seen before. He beheld his life, and it seemed to him horrible, his soul, and it seemed to him frightful. There was, however, a softened light upon that life and upon that soul. It seemed to him he was looking upon Satan by the light of paradise. As if he was looking upon Satan by the light of paradise. In other words, he looked at himself and he knew what he saw. And yet he saw it in a completely different light. He saw it by the light of paradise. You see what happens? This is Val, this, it's not Valjean's doing as if he's manufacturing it, but this is what happens. He's confronted with the light, an extraordinary light, a light at once so transporting and terrible. Terrible because it's revealing his true nature, his true wretched nature. But transporting because it is a light that promises to transform. It returns him to the act of the bishop, the humiliation of both needing grace and the joy of receiving that grace at the same time. An extraordinary light. He was looking upon Satan by the light of paradise. This is the light to which every weary sinner returns when we look upon ourselves, when we see ourselves, and we recoil. We don't avert our eyes. We don't refuse to believe the horror. We, think, we don't think optimistically that somehow we'll do better next time. And we don't believe the lie that the Satan we see ultimately wins. Once a thief, forever a thief. No, we see the Satan, but we see it by the light of paradise. Through the forgiveness purchased by Jesus, through the forgiveness of Jesus offered and achieved by grace, the life-changing grace that was experienced and proclaimed by Saul, a life-changing grace that is offered to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this light would shine deep in our hearts and it would expose the sin and the depths of who we are, that we might understand more deeply, more really and truly every day, the depth of our sin. But as we do that, and as we understand the grace that you have shown to us, help us to appreciate, even as we see our sin more clearly, <laughs> the grace that you have shown to us in an even greater light. For if we are an even greater sinner than we suppose, 
that means that you are an even greater Savior than we even hoped. Let that be our motivation to change us as we seek to evidence the change that has been done in our lives, as we seek to show forth the goodness of the grace you've shown to us, as we seek to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to face opposition with courage, to work with humility with others. Let it be that grace and that grace alone that drives us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.